Ezekiel 16, verses 30 through 34, and 59 through 63. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorn payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you are different from, the, from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Verse 59. For thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done, you who despise the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your, your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. This is the very word of God. There are always two sides to every story. Unless we hear them both, we suspect that we haven't really come to understand the truth. Last week, we discussed the ways in which Israel had rebelled against God We said that when God's people begin to lose confidence in God's word, believing it to be irrelevant, misunderstanding it, or finding it insufficient for their lives, they end up rebelling against the will and ways of God. This morning... We take a look at the rest of Ezekiel 14, as well as chapters 15 and 16, and here we're going to consider the problem of Israel's rebellion against God from God's perspective, from God's side. The word that best captures this is the word sin. We find it here in Ezekiel 14, verse 13. Ezekiel has only used this word once before in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. As you, of course, know, this is an important word in Christian theology. So, we need to understand it. We need to understand it from God's perspective. So, let's talk today about sin. What is sin? What does sin bring, and what can be done about it? What is sin? What does sin bring? What can be done about it? Let's begin this morning with this basic question for Christian theology. What is sin? Now, to be sure, the answer to that question 
would require lots of different perspectives, lots of different ways of answering it. And I, I'm not asking us this morning to get after a comprehensive definition of sin, but I want you to consider this morning the answer to that question from how it is presented in our passage. We understand by just the way we use the word that the word sin means doing something bad. That's how we use it anyway. Usually we mean something really bad. In our common vernacular, we get a sense that the word sin is a theological word. It's, it's, it's a re- religious word. When you use the word sin, you've entered into the realm of theology. Now, in verse 13, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, when a land sins against me. Stop right there. To sin is not just to do something bad or morally wrong. It, it is that. But it is to do something morally wrong, specifically in the eyes of God. That's all true, of course, but again, we need to say more. Because the problem here is that when we talk about sin, we assume, as I mentioned, that we have entered into the realm of religion, that we're dealing with a religious word. Again, that's how the word sin is usually understood in our culture. So we ask things like, Is this a sin according to the Bible or according to the Christian faith? Or is this a sin according to Islam, according to the Quran? But this just won't do if we really want to understand the Bible. We can't just leave sin in the realm of religion. Because if you keep reading in verse 13... Look what it says. Son of man, when a, land, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly. You see that last phrase? This is the translation of a key word for Ezekiel. He uses it a lot. The Hebrew word that's translated here refers to an act of infidelity or defection from a contract or especially from a covenant. In other words, what we see here is that to sin against God is not the mere violation of his rules that we are obligated to keep simply because he is God and, well, God gets to make the rules. That's just not going to do if you're going to understand sin according to the Bible and really the entirety of the Christian faith. Sin is much more personal than that. On the one hand, we can think of sinning as breaking our obligation to God since he is the Lord. That is to say, we can think of ourselves as God's subjects who live under his rule and under his reign. And so sinning is essentially this rebellion against God and his authority. Again, not wrong. We're getting closer to what Ezekiel has in mind. But still, we haven't got the whole picture. So let me put it this way. The word used here that describes sin as infidelity is never used in the Bible in reference to unbelievers. So think about that for a moment. This word is only used in reference to those who are in a covenant relationship with God. Now, that's not to say 
that unbelievers don't sin. It is to say that God's main concern, the real problem with sin, is not the sins of unbelievers. The real problem that God has is not that pagans have sinned. The problem God has here in Ezekiel is that his own people have sinned. Those whom he has entered into a covenant with have been unfaithful. The 16th chapter of Ezekiel is the longest chapter in the book. It's a retelling of Israel's story, of Israel's history, and it's framed like a dispute, a conflict between God and the nation's capital city, Jerusalem. Now, again, we don't have time to read through the whole chapter, so you're going to have to skim with me, follow through with me. I was, I was kind of laughing to myself last week because I said the same thing. We had a lot, and I noticed lots of heads were down the whole sermon, and I thought, well, they're either asleep or they are reading their Bibles. I'm going to assume the best of you, and you can keep your head down if you must. <laughs> Let's take a look. Verses 1 to 5, God reminds Israel of her origins, and he says that you come from the land of the Canaanites. Israel's father, again, remember, this is a dispute framed like God uh, arguing against the capital city. So Jerusalem comes from the land of the Canaanites. He says that Israel's father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Again, Ezekiel is telling Israel's story from the perspective of the history of Israel's capital city. And to speak of the city as coming from the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites might not mean much to you, but it did to Israel. This would be Ezekiel's way of saying that Israel come, Israel's historical roots are not pious, but pagan. Israel comes from stock that represents, from Israel's perspective, the worst of human depravity. It's an offensive way of saying, remember where you come from. You come from the worst of human depravity civilization. And it is from this stock that God says he took them and made them his own. Verses 6 to 14, you can just skim it. I told Jacob he should thank me. I didn't make him read these verses. And you'll read here how it is that Israel went from rags to riches, from a pauper to a princess. And all of it, you get the sense, is owing to God's covenantal love. Now, here I need to point out something important as you're skimming through those verses. As you read through a chapter like this one, with its rather explicit wording, there are all kinds of ways to misconstrue the meaning of a text like this. You, you probably can sense some. For some of you, as you read through verses like this, you're, you're going to, you may be offended at various ways you would suspect people could take a text like this and make it. Uh, make it mean all kinds of things it shouldn't mean. So, for example, just to, make it, just to make it plain, nothing in this chapter can be used to justify the abuse of women. This chapter does not tell us how prostitutes and adulterers in our day ought to be treated. What we need to understand here is that Ezekiel is using a rhetorical effect 
in order to make his telling of Israel's story get Israel's attention. He uses graphic images and exaggeration in order to shock his listeners into a positive response. That's what's happening here. And unless you read it with that kind of understanding of rhetoric, you're going to misconstrue the passage. The shock comes especially in verses 15 to 34 because after all that Yahweh had done for his people, with his love, the nation had played the whore, look what it says, with any passerby. Were we to slowly read these verses from God's perspective, we would surely agree with his assessment that comes in verse 30. Look what he says. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God. The abomination of Israel is even worse than we think. As verses 33 to 34 communicate, Jacob read these verses for us. Look what it says. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. You know, this is a scandalous picture that's coming to your mind. He says, you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. That is, you were even worse. How sick is your heart? So, the biblical concept of sin can only be explained. It can only be understood within a context of a relationship of love between God and his covenant people. Sin is not a black mark on an otherwise blank slate. Sin is the abomination of the most unimaginable acts of infidelity that one could possibly commit against their committed lover. In other words, there can simply be no justification for sin. There can be no excuse for it. There's no way to make it look a little better. If you're going to understand sin, you have to see it in the most graphic way possible. That's what Ezekiel's trying to get the people to do. Now, the prophet is describing sin again in this way in order to help us to see the harm that sin has caused. We've got something of a definition of it. We understand it in this context of a covenantal love, now Ezekiel wants to show the harm that comes from sin. Now, like the definition of sin, we could describe sin's awful effects in different ways, but Ezekiel has framed it in such a way that perhaps the word that best summarizes the effects of sin, what sin brings, is the word shame. Israel's sin has brought shame on themselves, on the land, on others, and even on God himself. Let's take a look. In the retelling of Israel's story, we, have, we see clearly the shame that Israel's sin, their rebellion against their, covenantal, their covenant with God, the, the shame that it has brought on themselves. In verse 23, we're in chapter 16. In verse 23, God interjects, Woe, woe to you. Israel has heaped more and more shame on themselves by their treacherous acts against Yahweh, against their God. 
Brothers and sisters, this is what sin does to the sinner. Romans 3.23, you know that verse. Romans 3.23 tells us not only that all have sinned, but also that by sinning, we all fall short of the glory of God. Now, read that verse, understand that verse within the context of covenantal love. That is to say, it is because of our sin that we are not the divine image bearers God wants us to be. Sin dehumanizes us. When a person sins, it robs them of the God-intended glory they were meant to possess. Now, this understanding of sin's effects helps us understand why, back again in chapter 14 for a moment, in verse 13, I skipped over it twice. You may have noticed it. God could speak about a land sinning against him. Did you notice that? When a land sins. Now, surely it's the people who live in the land, not the land itself, that commit the acts of sin. God's covenant is with his people. They're the ones who have sinned. But why, just why, does God speak that way? When does he, why does he speak of a land sinning? And the reason, I think, is because the consequences of sin are experienced not just on the people who commit the sins, but on all creation that they inhabit. In verse 15, we're back in chapter 14 for a moment. Is that okay? Back in chapter 14. In verse 15, we read of God bringing wild beasts to pass through the land and ravage it, making it desolate and uninhabitable. And the other judgments in chapter 14, sword, famine, pestilence, also affect not just the people, but also the land and the beasts. God's judgment against human sin shows that the scope of sin and its effects is not just on the people who commit the sins. Your sin doesn't just end with you. It also affects all of creation. Recall for a moment that the consequences for Adam's sin was not just his own death, his returning to the dust of the ground at the end of his life, God, back in Genesis 3, you remember, brought judgment against the ground that Adam was created to tend and to have dominion over. Which is why, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8, 22. The prophet Joel can write about how the beasts groan and how the herds of cattle are perplexed and the flocks of sheep suffer. When your dog looks at you with that look of perplexity, it's because your sin has affected him. <laughs> or maybe because he likes you. I don't know. But this is what the Bible teaches over and over again from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Your sin does not just bring shame upon you. It brings shame upon the land you dwell in. It's important to keep this biblical truth in mind when we read then about and talk about topics such as sin and judgment. The reason why God is so against sin is not because he is so easily angered, but because he so deeply loves. He so deeply loves you, and he so deeply loves the world he made you to live in. 
He wants his world to work the way he made it to work. Just like you want your job, your vocation to like do what you're trying to get it to do. God desires the same for his creation, for his work. And he made us, in the words of Genesis 2.15, to work it and to keep it. So when we get all out of sorts, all creation suffers along with us. Do you think of sin that way? Or do you think it just kind of affects you? Now we know, of course, that sin brings shame not only on the one who sins and on the land that they, they inhabit and all creation that they inhabit, but of course, sin also brings shame on all other human beings. The effects of a person's sins are never limited to oneself. God knows this. And you know this. You can think of all kinds of examples of how this is true. When somebody sins that you're close to, that you care deeply about, it has an effect on you. We can't ever individualize our sin and demand everyone leave us alone. Let me live my own life. Let me make my own choices. Don't you see how God is complaining here in this passage about the collective sin of his people? He's not targeting one particular individual. He is, he is angry with a deep love against his covenant people. Because the Bible gives us a story of God's intention from the beginning to share his rule over his world with his image bearers. His business, that of the cosmos, is our business together. So if one should suffer shame, all suffer shame. Sin is not just a moral wrong committed against God. Again, it is that. But it is also a corporate wrong committed against God's kingdom in which we all have a stake. And that's why sin also brings shame on God himself. Now, perhaps you haven't ever thought that possible, but go back again to Israel's story in chapter 16 and just read through it, and you'll get the point. This is a humiliating story, not only for Israel, but for the God of Israel. God humiliated? God shamed? Does your view of God, does your theology make that, is there room in your theology for that to be possible? If not, it might be because in our culture, we are allergic to shame. We do everything we can to cover it up. Most of us tend to experience shame as an overwhelming sense of inadequacy. And so we do everything we can to avoid it. And we could never possibly imagine God experiencing it. Inadequacy? God doesn't have inadequacy, so God can't be shamed. But here we need to understand, again... Sin and its consequences, what it brings, because the biblical concept of shame depends primarily on how a person is affected by somebody else's failures. In other words, in the Bible, shame is what a person experiences 
in a relationship and in a covenant in which two parties have pledged themselves to be loyal to each other. If one party breaks the commitment, it is the one who is wronged rather than the wrongdoer who experiences the shame. So, yes, the sin of God's covenant people has brought shame on God himself. So many people's views of God are just completely warped because they're not tracking with the story, with God's covenant relationship with his people. It was God who had rescued his people from Egypt and entered into a covenant with them to make them, in the words of Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What what does God make a, a, a kingdom of priests for other than for them now to go to work, bringing truth and beauty and justice into his world? And when the people rebel... When the people sin, the shame of sin is found not only in their failure to trust in God, it is also found in the failure that God himself experiences because he, can I say it this way, put his trust in them. So what then can be done about sin? Again, we Christians, we know, sin is an important part of our Christian theology and vocabulary. We sing about sin and what can be done about it. And, and it's all right. It's all right. But I'm, I'm hoping that we're coming to see these theological truths in the story of God so that they make sense, so that we get the picture of what is truly happening in the Christian faith. Because when we ask the question, what can be done about sin, you, you know, you're a Christian, <laughs> You know, oh, okay, now we're there. This gets us to the heart of the Christian gospel. What can be done about sin? Let's, let, we're running to Jesus, and that's the right place to go. Your instincts are right. <laughs> we're going to go right to the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what can be done about sin. Yes, yes and amen. Absolutely. But to really know what that means for the gospel to really grip your heart, you've got to follow along in the story. If we're going to believe the gospel of Jesus, then we need to see how his good news is the answer to the bad news, not of just sin in general, but of the sin of his own covenant people, the sin in the story of Israel. Okay, in other words, we should expect to find continuity in a passage like this one with the promise of the gospel in the New Testament. You should read Ezekiel 14 and 16 through 16, and if you're thinking this is about sin and shame, and there's some kind of connection here to solution in Jesus, then there should be some echoes in Ezekiel 14 and 16 that you pick up on in your New Testament. So let's take a look and see if we can find it. The rest of chapter 14, let's go back there for a moment, consists of a series of denials that there could be anyone who could stop the coming judgment of God against Israel for her covenant unfaithfulness. In fact, God says repeatedly, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, three legendary paragons of righteousness, 
even if they could be put forward, they would be incapable of doing anything about the coming judgment of God against sin. Now, before we get to our New Testaments, this account here in Ezekiel 14 should remind you of another Old Testament story. It's the story of Abraham pleading with God to spare another city, cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if by chance we could find some righteous people. And here, the nation hears the news. Remember, Abraham kind of stopped his negotiation around 10, right? We can find 10 righteous people. But here, God, let me just go ahead and go, go all the way for you. Even if you can find one, I'm not going to stop. There will be no sparing the unfaithful city, Jerusalem. The capital city. That place that Israel believed God would absolutely come and defend. After all, he made a covenant with his city, with us, with his people. God isn't going to bring judgment on his own city. And here Ezekiel saying, yes, he is, and no one can stop it. And in fact, we, we, <laughs> we've been seeing this so much already in Ezekiel that probably you're like, can we just move on? Like This is, his, this is the drum he keeps on beating. Ezekiel has been saying over and over again that God's hand of judgment is coming down on the nation of Israel. Nothing can be done to stop it. He is bringing upon the nation, he says in chapter 14, verse 21, his four disastrous acts of judgment, cutting off from it man and beast. The story goes like this. God has decided he must bring his judgment down on his covenant rebels. I mean, how else can he eradicate the sin of their infidelity? It's not like we find them here pleading for mercy. It's not like they are returning to him in repentance and faith. No, they are continuing in their rebellion, and their sin is bringing shame to themselves, to their land, to others, to God himself. And God has to do something. So chapter 15, he uses a parable of a useless vine to ask in verse 4 if the nation and their rebellion against him is useful for anything. And by now we should have come to see God's side to the story and therefore know the answer. The only thing that can be done in the parable, just skim it, the only possible right response is to throw it in the fire. So then what's, what's left? Ezekiel's saying God's judgment is coming down on his covenant people because of the rebellion, because of their sin, because of the shame that it has brought, and there's nothing left but to throw it in the fire. It's good for nothing. So what's left? Can the story just end like that? There's a surprise that comes in chapter 14, verse 22 and following, where God says that following his four disastrous acts, there will be some survivors who will be brought out to console you when you see their ways and their deeds, to make known to all that God has not done this without cause. 
his all-consuming judgment is coming upon Israel, but somehow there will be some left to tell the tale. It's a surprise. It's a mystery. We don't know how that's going to work out. But then we get to the end of chapter 16, and we find that God here promises to remember his covenant that he made with Israel. The covenant described in Israel's story in chapter 16. God's going to remember this covenant. And then he says, and he will establish it for you. He will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. One that will not end. There is going to come a time, God promises, when God's judgment will fall on Israel decisively and effectively, eradicating their sin and its shame so that what's left is a a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant that could never be broken again. Now, follow the story, the story of Israel. Because when Jesus began his ministry, he went around telling stories. You know that, right? You read your Gospels, read your Bible. We call them usually parables, stories. And Jesus was doing exactly what Israel's prophets had done all along. Jesus is telling stories just like Ezekiel is going around telling stories. You know, like the one in chapter 15, Or the one in chapter 16. And those stories are all basically doing the same thing. They are telling Israel's story over and over again, but in subversive ways. So, let me give an example. Take the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that one? In Luke 15. How should we read it? It's not just a moral tale of sin and shame and grace, it's an historical tale of Israel's sin and shame and grace. It's a story that tells us of what has happened to Israel who rebelled against God, but also of what will come after, of what will soon happen to Israel when the son who is Israel in person goes into the far country And takes upon himself the shame of Israel's exile so that the kingdom may come. That the covenant can be renewed. And that the prodigal welcome of Israel's God, the creator, can be extended to the ends of the earth. Luke 15 begins, as you know, with a few Pharisees grumbling because Jesus is eating with sinners. Does he have no shame? Well, here's the claim. The claim of Jesus of Nazareth. The claim of the gospel of Christ. The claim that we say we believe, Christians, is the claim that Jesus was making when he told stories like that, that the story of Israel had now come to its completion. The long night of exile was over. In the flesh of the Messiah, Paul says in Romans 8, God condemned sin so that the righteous verdict of the law could now be fulfilled in those who live by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. 
In Jesus, Israel has now been reconstituted. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And for all who believe in Israel's Messiah, there's a party that has begun. The prodigal has been brought back home. Sin and shame has been dealt with. And what is there now left to do except go to the party? Enter into the party. Don't stand outside where there's only sin and shame. Come into the party and dine. Nevertheless, the party can only be enjoyed when we, like the prodigal, see the whole story through the lens of our own shameful treachery against the backdrop of God's redeeming love. See, there's always two sides to the story. And when we see the story from God's side, we get the true story. We find the end of sin and its shame and the arrival of all the possibilities of a new creation. Sound too good to be true? Well, if there's a catch, it is only this. The only hope that you and I have, that anyone has, for seeing the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God now come in Christ is through faith in Christ alone. And by faith, we mean trust, reliance on him, dependence on him. We must, to use Jesus' words, abide in the true vine. For without him, we are good for nothing and deserve only to be thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in him and his words abide in you, you will bear much fruit, Jesus said. And so proved to be his disciples. That's the promise of the gospel. Ezekiel 15 sounds like John 15. Here we find the hope, the promise of good news, the arrival of the kingdom of God, the end of Israel's exile, the beginning of a new creation, a party that you can enter into by faith. It's a gospel that Paul says he is not ashamed of. It will not disappoint. It will not lead to shame. How could it? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. Welcome, sinner. So be of good cheer, all you who hope in Christ. For Christ has spoken these things, he says in John 15, so that his joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let us pray. Father in heaven, if we're going to believe Jesus and all that he has come to do, and then to live our lives in the reality of his kingdom, then we got to follow the story. The story of a God who, like the father of the prodigal son, doesn't give up, never gives up. Now, he pulls no punches. His judgment falls, but it is a judgment of covenantal love. And for all who see that the decisive judgment fell on Israel in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, then there is salvation. Then there is hope. Then there is a new creation. Then there is a party 
and anyone is welcome to come. So, Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit again, renew and reshape us in the story of Israel. It's our story. And in Israel's true Messiah, we have now come to see the end of shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because in the flesh of the Messiah, God condemned sin once for all. Renew us in this story, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.